Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for checking into the best Houston sports podcast. Robert, along with Sports Radio 610's Sean Bajani, as usual. And if you're new to the show, we welcome you aboard. 45 years in journalism between the two of us, over 35 covering sports in the Houston area. And Sean, it looks like Billy Wagner, the former Astro great, is poised to get into Cooperstown next year. And after this year's vote, he was so close. We think that's what's going to happen. Before I get to that, just a quick reminder to subscribe and comment on YouTube. It's the best way to support the show. And if you want to listen on the run, find us on your favorite podcast app. But Sean, before I get your thoughts on Wagner, let's take a minute to listen back to what I said about this a year and a half ago when Wagner was inducted into the Astros Hall of Fame. My longtime co-host Stephen Kerr and I had thoughts on the Astros bullpen ace and his Hall of Fame candidacy. Can somebody please explain to me why Billy Wagner is not in the Hall of Fame and and why this is not a bigger thing or a bigger controversy? Because they threw up the stats and, and you just it's thrown right into your face when you see it in the stats. Most career saves all time. He's sixth with 422 of those six guys, Trevor Hoffman, Lee Smith, Mariano Rivera, Francisco Rodriguez, John Franco. He has the best opponent batting average, 187. 187 his era 231 it's the second best of those six guys and it just seems like nobody's noticed it like not even in houston sometimes you feel like it's gotten enough attention that that he's not more into hall of fame consideration yeah i absolutely agree robert and i know we we sound like a bunch of you know a couple of homers because we're astros fans but honestly all you have to do is look at the numbers and you see that he's right up there i don't know you know Closers, it's funny. I mean, they they voted all those other guys in you just talked about. And Billy Wagner, you know, it's certainly not because he didn't have a good personality with the writers. You know, that can always influence how, how the votes go. I mean, can you imagine Billy Wagner getting up there when he's inducted into the Hall of Fame? Can you imagine what his Hall of Fame speech would be like? Man, I just love to hear the guy talk, honestly. I love to watch him pitch, but I love to hear him talk because he's got some things to say. He's got that that good old country boy persona that – you just love, yeah, I, honestly, it's got to happen sooner rather than later, doesn't it? It's not like he's not exciting. The guy's a flamethrower. He's not Jamie Moyer when, he, when he's right. throwing junk. Uh, so, yeah, that that is – it's baffling. But I, I, it was great this weekend to see the day that he gets into the Astros Hall of Fame, his son Will hits his first minor league – well, you would say professional <laughs> home run that game. And, and Billy Wagner – was on his iPad a lot, according to the guys that were uh, calling the games over the weekend, you know, keeping up with everything that it was, his son was doing. So that, that was cool. So there you go, Sean. I just can't believe that Billy Wagner can't get any traction. And he also played with New York team, a New York team, the New York Mets. And Sean, I, I was listening, or actually I was reading what John Heyman had to say. And he said, well, I didn't vote for Wagner because of his bulk stats. That was one of the quotes. And I thought bulk stats, I I thought saves is a pretty good bulk stat if you're a reliever. I mean, that's what he's done. He's sixth all time. This is is not a guy that's just like, oh, well, he's got 30 saves, but, you know, his ERA and his, you know, whip and his this and his that's good. No, he's sixth all time. And, And as I pointed out in there, the, the ERA is incredible with those other guys. 
The numbers are really inarguable and trying to figure out why he's not in yet, why he only garnered, um, you know, what was it, 51 percent of the vote um, this go around. I, I mean, I don't know. There's so many various different reasons. Um, you know, I take Scott Rowland into account five years ago, whenever he first uh, received double digit votes, it was 10 percent. And what did he go in the other day with like 78% of the vote or something like that? And it was a steady, you know, incline of voting support that he'd garnered just over uh, really a five-year span. And I think it probably happened a little bit quickly uh, for a lot of people that were surprised and even angry that he'd gotten in. But when you look at Wagner's ascension, you know, he too, he started with 10% of the vote. I think his first year of eligibility, if it was 2016 or 2017, something like that, and to get up to 51.1% of the vote um, this go around this week, I think is pretty impressive. I think it lends pretty good hope uh, for him. It was 51% the year before, 68%. Okay. Yeah. Around. 60. Yeah. Good. Good call. Good call. Um, I was hung up on the 51. So 68. I mean, that's, that's a 17, almost 17% increase. And generally speaking, I mean, we can go back and look at it, but I think if you do like in the last, let's just say 10 years, guys that have been right there teetering, you know, that have kind of hung around, they usually see that market increase within the, you know, three years prior of, of them getting inducted. And so I think there's some really good examples to point to there just in the last decade. Wagner might be one in the future. You know, now Jeff Kent um, is is another one um, who is, if you look at his total body of work. He fell off the ballot altogether, yeah. and, and he's pissed about it. He said, quote, baseball is losing a couple of generations of great players that were the best in their era because a couple of non-voting stat folks keep comparing those players to players already voted in from generations past and are influencing the votes, it's unfair to the best players in their own era and those already voted in, unquote. Kent's a five-time All-Star, Sean, four-time Silver Slugger, 290 hitter, nearly 2,500 hits, and has the most home runs by a second baseman ever. And I think that's what really matters is when you look at, you know, some of the greatest second basemen ever and all encompassing. That's how I kind of looked at Scott Rowland. You know, he was one of the bigger third basemen, uh, third baseman that you ever seen play um, the speed element, the power element. Um, you know, Jeff Kent brought a lot of those similar attributes in terms of what he'd meant to the position. And if we're talking the Hall of Fame, you know, the best of the best, it's not you know, the greatest home run hitters. It's not the guys that drove in the most runs. It's not just the guys that had the most hits. It's, hey, let's take the glove into account as well. You know, Scott Rowland's case, he had the fourth most gold gloves all time for a third baseman. Jeff Kent, five gold gloves for a second baseman. The glove was there. The offense was there. You know, on base percentage career-wise, you know, up around 380, 390, I believe, for his career. The batting average is there. The hits, 2,500. You go up and down the line. Statistically, it's there, Robert. You know, the point that I made the other day, and I want to know what you think about this, and maybe Kent hit on it a little bit as well, you know, the non-voting folks. Um, as voters have kind of changed drastically over the course of the last, let's just call it 30 years, but even in the last few, since, you know, baseball has kind of weeded people out. If you haven't covered these, you know, if you haven't covered the sport in X amount of years, like bye, you know, and they're going to try to take guys that are seeing the game now and that had seen the game then. 
I wonder, as much as we've seen voters change, like statistics have a lot to do that and have a lot to do with that and how they view the production of players. Well, here's the other thing about statistics. Jeff Kent put up great statistics in an era where everybody was cheating. Jeff Kent is not on that list of cheaters, according to what anybody's found out or anything close to suspicion. And the thing about Jeff Kent is he's considered not a great guy. He wasn't a good guy with the media. We know that always plays a role in this. What baffles me is Billy Wagner was great with the media. He's a fun player. He's a guy that everybody, I think, enjoyed being around, talking to, great quote, everything that you would want. And like I said, it wasn't like he didn't play in New York for a long time. He did. He played with the Mets for quite a few years. It seems like it wasn't that long because we remember him so much with the Astros and he spent so much time here. But, you know, the time with the Mets was a good amount of time for those people up there to get to know the Billy Wagger that we knew. And and John Heyman also said he didn't have enough big moments. And I'm like, when does that matter in baseball? In the NBA, you hear it sometimes. But in baseball, are we getting rid of Ernie Banks and Ted Williams from the Hall of Fame? I mean, what what's that about? Yeah, and I think, you know, I think it's maybe a little bit of all the above. I mean, they're voters. They're, um, you know, unpredictable. They're just humans. And we all look at things. I mean, just look at podcasting and sports talk radio. How many times do we all agree on one thing? You know, there's just different ways to look at it. And we place different values on certain things. And there's there's no real formula. You know, it used to be back in the day you had benchmark numbers. And if you didn't reach the benchmark of 500 homers of, you know, a certain amount of RBIs, if you didn't have 3,000 hits or a 300 career average, you weren't a surefire Hall of Famer. There had to be discussion had. But I think the fact that, you know, he's a closer and we've seen kind of baseball open its doors a little bit more here recently to more specialized roles as the game has evolved. Um, but we do still have older voters um, with a different mentality, I think. And until that comes full circle and completely changes and it's all just continuously evolving, there's not really going to be, I think, um, this unanimous agreement that, hey, regardless of how the game has changed and there's specific positions and specialized roles, we're not going to view them um, that way. Um, the point that I wanted to make in regards to you know statistics and how it's affected voters is that all these advanced metrics that we talk about nowadays um, didn't exist. I mean, they weren't conversation points. They weren't, you know, pelts on the wall for guys that played 15 years ago, um, you know, even closer to a decade ago. But you take those into account now and you apply war and all of these things to these players that have kind of been there, done that in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s. And they look a little bit better than you maybe thought they were then. And that changes the minds of a lot of voters, in which I think is why you see the ascension of these players in the percentage of votes that they're getting every year. Well, Sean, I, I feel like we're going to see Billy Wagner get in a year from I now. Do too. And I think you're going to have to go up there to Cooperstown and be our correspondent when this thing happens. Are you ready? I would love it, man. I did it for Jeff Bagwell a handful of years ago. And uh, absolutely, if another former Astro is graced with the honor of getting into Cooperstown, I'm definitely going to do everything in my power to make that happen. That turned out to be, I, I went on my own. I just wanted to see it. I was mad that I didn't get to see Craig Biggio the year prior to that. And so I went up there for Biggio and it was fantastic for Bagwell. And it was fantastic. 
um, an experience unlike any other. And I'd been there as a kid, as a 15 year old. And to go up there as, you know, a 30 something um, was just as special, probably more so because I'd forgotten a lot of what I'd seen. And um, yeah, I can't wait to do that. If Wagner gets in, awesome. If Kent gets in, awesome. And I think both of those guys will. Now, Kent's going to be a little bit different. Uh, because he has to wait now for the contemporary committee to uh, put him in since he'd fallen off the ballot. How many more years, by the way, does uh, Wagner have before he falls off the ballot um, if he doesn't get in, let's say, next year, which shouldn't be a difficult thing. He has to get seven more percent of the vote. I I don't think I checked on that, but one thing that's real interesting about Billy Wagner is, you know, he was with the Astros from 1995 to 2003, so it's about nine years or so, which is about the same as Nolan Ryan, but Outside of Nolan and Billy Wagner, I don't know if there's anybody. I can't think of anybody. Can you in the Hall of Fame that spent more time as an Astro outside of, of course, Bagwell and Biggio? That spent more time. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, that spent more years with the Astros than Bagwell or Biggio. That's in the Hall of Fame. That's in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, I think Billy Wagner's Ooh. right there with Nolan Ryan. Nolan spent the entire 80s so i i want to say it's 10 years and then billy wagner spent nine years i want to say with the astros and there's nobody i mean i can't think of anybody that's in the hall of fame that spent as much time as those two guys outside of obviously you know we know biggio and bagwell who spent you know over well over a decade with with the astros anyway that just an interesting thought that is a good point i mean the fact that we're struggling with it, I mean, I, I don't think that there is. People forget about Nolan in the 80s, <laughs> you know, at the Astros. Like, not people from here, but, you know, people on the outside, um, they forget about that. By the way, I think Billy's got two more years. He retired in 2010. Kent was 2008. So um, just judging by the end of their careers and their start of their Hall of Fame eligibilities, Billy's got two more years. I don't think he'll need it. He needs seven more percent. We had, wasn't it Burt Blylevin a few years ago before he'd actually gotten in? The voters really messed with him bad. Like he'd missed it by like just a few percentage points uh, one year and had to wait till the next year to get that one vote. And it's probably Dan Shaughnessy or something holding the whole thing up. But um, I, I really think Billy's probably going to make that jump 68 to beyond 75 next year it was nine years for nolan so he didn't last till 89 i thought he would last the whole decade so it's the same as billy wagner so those those two would be tied for third i think as far as astros tenure in the hall of fame um let's go to the texans because uh the latest texan coaching odds i found real interesting according to vegas you and i doing this on a thursday afternoon and jonathan gannon still the favorite plus 175 but it's gone down a little bit. 36.4% chance he's the guy. D'Amico is a rock-solid number two right now at plus 200, not too far behind Gannon at 33%. So the momentum is there. And Mike Kafka is plus 500, a guy that you say has got a lot of buzz to him, 16.7%. Ijiro Avero is plus 600. And Shane Steichen is plus 650. Yeah, and I think Steichen being you know near the bottom of that list in terms of the odds probably has more to do with opportunity elsewhere in terms of being a better fit, I guess. Um, I think you can make a really strong argument. I don't know if we're talking enough about Shane Steichen um, because he checks a lot of the boxes that not just fans want, but that you should want if you're in the position that the Houston Texans are right now. Um, he's one of the few 
not named Sean Payton, the only one actually that's been an offensive coordinator for more than one season. He's wrapping up, I believe, year three with the Philadelphia Eagles right now. And he's an offensive guy. Um, when you have a number two pick, who knows if the Texans stay there, if they try to trade up, if they stay put, trade down, whatever, you're going to get a quarterback that you hope you can develop into the franchise quarterback of this organization. And what better guy that is not, again, named Sean Payton, would you like to kind of turn the keys over to the car with and have him develop them and make them in um, to just that, the franchise guy. Look at the job that he's done with Jalen Hurts, obviously. But Mike Kafka is a guy, I feel like, man, is really gaining traction. He is buzzing. People are talking about him. People are looking a lot more closely at him, and we're finding more things out in terms of specifically the tree that he came from. We know it's Andy Reid. We know it's Kansas City. We know Eric Bieniemy and Patrick Mahomes, all of these things. But what did he do? I mean, we're finding out now and hearing some things in terms of how Andy Reid decided to handle this Patrick Mahomes experiment that was, you know, just a handful of years ago whenever they drafted him. And Reid said, hey, Kafka, he was the quarterback coach, first year. Here you go. You know, he's yours, man. Let's see what you can do with him. And that that speaks loud and clear to the kind of faith that a head coach like Andy Reid, who's been there, done that, and been so successful, has in a guy like Mike Kafka, who was a five-year NFL vet and maybe, you know, played in a couple of handfuls of games over the course of his career as a backup quarterback. And here you go. You're going to turn the keys over to this guy and make a franchise quarterback out of Patrick Mahomes. Well, the other the, the other part about this and something that, you know, you're talking about, we, we talk about these as in terms of it's one guy. But let's keep this in mind. If you bring in Mike Kafka, he's got to know, who's going to be his defensive coordinator or Casario has got to have a guy set up for him. If you bring in Jonathan Gannon, who's going to be his offensive coordinator? Cause those are critical things and how the staff plays out, whether it's D'Amico or Kafka or whoever it's, it's always a package deal that you're trying to get done with these guys. So like, like don't always think of, Oh, well it's this guy and let's focus on what he does and how good he is and all of that sort of stuff. I mean, I personally believe, that, and I feel like I'm sounding like some uh, bad Miss Universe contestant right now. I personally believe, but what <laughs> what what I think on head coaches is you you get the guy that you feel like is going to be, be the less best leader of men. And you know, I know about D'Amico. I know about Gannon a little bit. I don't know a whole lot about Kafka, and he hasn't been around in these type of leadership positions, maybe as much as those other two guys, although Gannon's only been a DC for a couple of years, but um, th that to me is like a big deal with this. Although I think when GMs look at it, they look at it as, like I said, the package deal. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, you have to, I mean, that's one of the, 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 the first few questions I have to imagine, you know, when you go in for an interview, um, Hey, you know, who are you thinking for coordinators? You know, let's see your tree here says that you've worked with this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy, you know, what's your relationship like with them? 
what do you think about their scheme, how they handle the locker room, players, practices, the whole thing? You know, what other things do they help the organization do when you worked with them? And they're trying to piece, the, you know, the puzzle together. I mean, if those aren't questions, those would certainly be my questions, because every time I'm, you know, going to block out an hour to three, four hours, six hours in the case of Sean Payton for some teams and talking to him, if I'm going to block that amount of time out, those are all things that I want covered. I want to create the best possible blueprint that I can if you're the guy, okay? You have to have that conversation. And then, okay, we can worry about the whole sales pitch later. You know, if the money's going to be right, the years are going to be right. You know, here's what we're thinking. We're going to make you uh, turn Davis Mills into something or – yeah, you know, Davis, we're probably going to make him a backup and we're taking a quarterback this draft. And, you know, what do you think about that? All of those things are discussed. I thought it was interesting. And I thought about it the same way you did, Robert, as you laid that out right now. I think it was um, a, a Vero, uh, a, gy- a Gyro Evero. Boy, I hope he's not the guy because that's a tough name to, for me to remember. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> double same E. Here. You know, I'm going to call him Double E wherever he goes. Doesn't matter. But Double E. I think he'd gotten a job interview, uh, maybe one or two elsewhere, as an offensive coordinator. Uh, I'm sorry, not not Evero, but Thomas Brown. He got a job interview as uh, an offensive coordinator. And so I thought about it like, okay, well, he interviewed for the Texans as, as a head coach, and he's never, never been a coordinator at the NFL level, did it for three years at the, at the University of Miami from 16 to 18. But I wonder if the Texans liked elements of Thomas Brown and maybe – if there is some sort of past relationship where, you know, paths have crossed between maybe D'Amico or Thomas Brown, they know each other or whatever. If, if it's D'Amico and he, he maybe brings a Thomas Brown in who interviewed for head coach, but also interviewed for offensive coordinator for another organization or two, and they like his ideas, maybe you bring him in and he can fill out a staff, something like that. In terms of a package deal, not where you had previous relationships before, but maybe because you liked a couple of candidates that you interviewed for different roles on this organ in this organization. I think that's maybe a possibility. I don't know how long how often that happens. Probably not much, but it is something to think about as you know we continue to roll forward. And look, the three biggest guys, in my opinion, D'Amico, Steichen, and Gannon, you can't talk to them until beyond January 30th. You still have four or five more days before you get to that point. So. Um, you have to explore all options, all opportunities, and try to create, you know, mock blueprints and see which one you like best. One quick thing outside of the Texans coaching decision, the quarterback decision, because we always come back to that in the draft. And here's the thing that's bugging me. Will Levis keeps being brought up for the Texans. And I'm like, what? I, 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 I'm sorry. No, no, thank you. Mel Kuyper said it the other day. Yeah. Look at Will Levis's. Can, can we look at his numbers for just one second? He had 19 touchdowns and 10 interceptions this year. 19 touchdowns, 10 interceptions for his career, which is basically the last two years, 46 touchdowns and 25 interceptions. C.J. Stroud, okay? C.J. Stroud in one season this year, 41 touchdowns and six interceptions. Last year, he had 44 touchdowns and six interceptions. Like, it's not even close. And I've watched Will Levis as a quarterback because he's in the SEC, and my team that I follow, the Missouri Tigers, are in the SEC, and I saw him go up against the Tigers this year. He didn't look good. I've seen him other times. He's scattershot. He's all over the map, Sean. I don't understand what anybody is excited about. Yeah, he looks good. He looks good in a uniform. Guess what? Uh, I, I go back to the old Joel Bushbaum quote, the 
Mel Kuyper before Mel Kuyper, the original Mel Kuyper, who used to say, looks like Tarzan, plays like Jane. <laughs> I remember that. I've heard that over the years. Yeah. <laughs> well, you heard you heard what Kuyper said the other day in regards to Levis, right? Um, and for people that maybe not familiar with uh, his analysis of Will Levis, Kuyper, to all of your points, on the contrary, said, well, Levis was banged up. He, you know, didn't have a good offensive line. He didn't have his weapons. Um, you know, the, the receivers that he'd had to throw to, you know, the route concepts were poor. And, yeah, you're going to throw more interceptions when you're trying to force balls. I mean, had an excuse for everything. And Kuyper flat out said, when asked, who is the best quarterback prospect in this draft today in your mock draft? 8.4 or whatever it is by now for Mel Kuyper. He said, well, Levis, we'll see if he changes his tune in another month or two or three, you know, before the draft. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if he does, but that's, that's just the contrary. But how much, you know, do you take into account co collegiate statistics? I mean, we, we know you got to take a little bit of that with a grain of salt. Depends on the offense, depends on the talent around you, depends on the conference you're playing. And then there's like always that. situational issues, but you don't come into yeah. the NFL and everything's perfect and you don't get into perfect situations right. and the Texans aren't perfect. And he's going to have to deal with a lot of issues here and I'm not saying, you know, you've got to get better at all those things and, and you will, but come on. I mean, it's, it's not perfect. No, it's not perfect. And, you know, I look, Mel Kuyper, Todd McShay, all of these other mock drafts, you know, and analysts that we hear from that are going to talk guys up and down, you know, over the course of the, you know, NFL offseason for three, four months is leading up to the draft. That is, it's crazy, you know, and it's it's maddening because I'm not a talent evaluator, you know, to the degree that they are. I'm not talking to scouts. I'm not talking to front office people. I'm not talking to athletic directors or coaches or anybody like that. I'm just kind of looking at it and trusting my eyes like, you know, thousands of you out there are doing the same thing. I mean, this is what we do, Robert. And, you know, my eyes tell me that right now, if you told me from Bryce Young, C.J. Stroud, Will Levis, um, uh, Hendon Hooker, uh, Richardson. What, what, what's Richardson's first name from Florida? I can't Anthony remember. Anthony Richardson. Anthony Richardson. Those guys, those are like the top guys, right? Which one right now today, gun to my head, am I saying to you is going to be a franchise? There's only going to be one franchise quarterback out of those. That's what I'm telling you right now in this hypothetical. Who's it going to be? I'm going Bryce Young. That's it. I'm going Bryce Young. Gun to my head, you know. In, in four or five months, years, am I dead or alive? We'll have to wait and see. Could Will Levis turn into like some Dan Jones success story? You know, I don't know. Maybe. But to say that the guy just flat out can't play, um, no. He's obviously got some skills. But can he come in today right now and lead an NFL franchise? I don't think so. Can Richardson do that? I don't think so. Can Hendon Hooker do that? I don't think so. I even have my doubts about C.J. Stroud. But I'm confident in one guy, and that's Bryce Young, that I think could come in right now and lead an NFL franchise. I saw something that he's somewhere around 180-something pounds. Somebody said, I don't know if they're, like, secretly getting to his scale or whatever. I don't know how they're figuring this out. Like, it feels like a guessing game because he's not listed as that. But I know they're talking about him desperately trying to get to 200 pounds by the time the, the, the combine or whatever rolls around when they start measuring him. But it's just – it's funny to me. It seems like he might be the only person in the country – in January after New Year's Eve that his uh, 
his big uh, thing is trying to gain weight instead of trying to lose weight. <laughs> yeah, you know, like the whole game with the weight. I mean, my God, I just – so what if he gets up to 200? Is it a good 200? Is it playing 200? You know, he's going to get 200 for a day or two, you know, to do these weigh-ins at a pro day or a combine, and then he gets drafted. And guess what? The guy, he just – he plays at 192. That's that's the best we can do. And he's added, you know, X percentage of muscle on his frame. Okay, so what? Like, I, I'm not falling into that trap. I know the odds, you know, are stacked against you. And you just look at some prime examples, you know, Kyler Murray, Tua, you know, some of these smaller quarterbacks, you know, that have been banged up, slung around like ragdolls, have soft tissue issues, you know, or concussion issues, whatever the case may be. Look, size does matter to a degree. Um, but look, if you got one of the better offensive lines in front of you, and if you're built or building around this guy legitimately, then I don't know. Look, maybe we need to stop looking at these types of quarterbacks as franchise guys in terms of like, who's going to be the dude for the next decade plus. Maybe we need to start looking at them with a little bit more of a timeline on them. Like we do running backs. You know what? If you can get six years out of a guy, awesome. You know, (laughs) Yeah, you're going to end up paying the guy um, once his rookie contract expires. But, you know, what's it worth to you? And you just kind of cycle through them, you know, to some degree like that. I think it's obviously not all quarterbacks, but, I mean, these smaller type guys that are, uh, you know, dual threat, um, you know, heavy skilled guys like that. Maybe that's how you need to look at them. I don't know. Well, a guy like Lamar Jackson. Okay, I'm going to throw somebody throw him out there. You know, Lamar Jackson, like like a lot of the quarterbacks now, they're going to run some. So the, the life is going to get shortened up a little bit if you are going to run some. I mean, Russell Wilson's done that, but he's able to get down and stay out of traffic and, and that sort of thing. But, yeah, no, I think that's definitely a thing. And I, I don't know if it was ever a issue in the NFL where you were like, okay, I'm going to try to get 10 years out of any position out there, much less quarterback. So, yeah, I, I agree with you there. I, I just don't – I don't see a need to, like, worry about him his longevity but you know a lot of people will say well i'm not worried about his longevity i'm worried about his short jeopardy and, then, and how long he's gonna last th- this coming season if, if if he's 183 pounds or something the years go by fast you know so i mean even if it is a bryce young and he's he's a slow starter you know uh slow adapting to the nfl and that first year is just the first year it's his rookie year you chalk it up to that well then you're in year two and you've got that fifth-year option because it's a first-round pick, and so you've got year two, three, and four before you have to make the decision to exercise that fifth year and maybe thinking about paying a guy. Well, look how fast the Arizona Cardinals paid you know, Kyler Murray and then maybe how much they're regretting doing so right now today uh, because of that decision, give them all that money. You know, the market is only going to go up until you tell me that it's not. <laughs> and I would just, it would have to be something just catastrophic for it to just pause or just stop or start a decline. But it's it's just going to, the years start going by. So he has a good year two and a really good year three. Maybe he's an all pro and a pro bowler and he gets the team to the first AFC championship game. And it's like, hey man, we got to pay this guy right now because the market's only going up. And that's a decision that you have to make as a franchise. But maybe you sign them up to a seven-year deal worth, you know, $250 million and $180. That's guaranteed at that point in time. And then what? Reality hits. 
your offensive line takes a beat. You know, you can go through all the scenarios, and it's just, man, this guy doesn't look as good. Well, his offensive line's bad, and you had to get rid of a receiver or two, and you had to go through different changes at running back, and, well, the defense stinks now, and we went through another head coaching change, you know, whatever the case may be. And you're saddled with all this guaranteed money that you're paying a quarterback, and you're thinking, like, man, is this guy our future? I guess I just want those problems at this point in time. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Give me, give me, give me something like that. Uh, just a reminder, if you need a Rockets fix, check out our show with our Rockets expert, our regular Frank with Rockets Chop Shop. That went up on Wednesday. And by the way, Sean, we had a lot of praise for Shane Goon Wednesday night, 21 points, 11 rebounds, 10 assists, three steals, two blocks. The only 20 year old who put up a line with at least those numbers and all those categories across the board at a younger age is some guy named Magic Johnson. And I just want to close the show out, Sean, by saying this about Shane Goon. All I heard about, at least from the Rockets, is, well, he's not good enough defensively. Well, he hasn't looked too bad defensively recently. He's not perfect, but he's 20 years old. And guess what? Everybody else on this roster stinks defensively, practically, except maybe a Jay Sean Tate or a Jabari Smith. Number two, I don't want to hear that he can't go longer than 26 minutes a night when you're throwing him out there right now for 35 plus minutes a night and he doesn't look tired at the end of the night he still looks like he can do some things out there a lot of this stuff that the Rockets threw in his way is just flat out wrong and we're seeing how wrong it is right now they might take the credit and say well you know he wasn't ready till now and I I think that's kind of crap because all of a sudden he's getting all these minutes when they need him to get these minutes because Kevin Porter's not out there and they're realizing we need somebody out there that can actually score and get the offense going, which is what Shane Goon has done. And I guess my final thing with him, Sean, is uh, if you're a Rockets fan, there's a lot of bad stuff this year. But this guy has been a light. He has been a beam of hope and somebody that they, frankly, stole with a couple of first-round picks that they traded over to Oklahoma City. Somebody threw up on Twitter that, oh, well, you know, that, Thank you, Oklahoma City, but they owed us about 20 favors after that Westbrook Chris Paul trade, and we're never well, going to get that back. No, no, it's going to be a black eye on the organization. You know, it doesn't go away. It's going to be a, a memory always, bad one, but always it'll be there. I think the best point you made about Shingoon is the amount of minutes that he's playing and his effectiveness. You know, 27 to 35 minutes in this rocket system can be a little bit differently in another system. Minutes are not equivalent. It's what you're being asked to do while you're on the floor and the onus that is placed on you on either side of the ball, offensively or defensively. And I think with the better group, um, you know, and and just maybe some different pieces in a rotation that is a little bit different and a better coach with a better scheme, um, I think 27 to 36 minutes looks a little bit different. I think we can all agree to that. And I, I just know this, Shangun, you're right. He's been a light, but I mean, I'd felt like we should be talking a lot more about this guy for a lot longer period of time than we have. Like I didn't need to see all of this this year to know that he was going to be a special player. I'm glad I'm seeing it. Validation's good. I just wish it would rub off on some other guys and, you know, they would play with the consistency, the heart, the effort that this guy brings to the table every night. I I love it. This guy is somebody you can absolutely add some pieces to build around and it should give you hope, you know, in the future. 
uh, for the Rockets team. And, you know, I just hope that Jabari Smith and Jalen Green particularly, and if it's KPJ, like they just start to feed off of this and just some epiphany hits, somebody punches them in the face and wakes them up a little bit. Um, and you know what? Rafael Stone and Steven Silas to boot. Somebody just give them a mean elbow right to the chops and, and let them wake up, man, because something's got to change here. And I, ultimately, I told you this the other day, um, you know, phone conversation. I, I think at the at, at season's end, something will change in that front office. I just have to believe that um, because it is go time. It's go time. You're not tanking anymore. You get this one out of your system and you get the very best player that you possibly can in this draft lottery and you move on. But when I mean move on, you got to get yourself a new GM. You got to get yourself a new, uh, a new staff and, and, you know, go with this great young talented roster that is full of skill, man. They really are. You just ain't seen it yet. Houston doesn't know what it has right now because you didn't have the coach or the front office to really uh, supply that foundation. No Rockets fans. No, maybe Houston does it. I don't know. Houston, if you're a Rockets fan, if you care about him and you watch the team, I can guarantee All the Hardos do. All, the, all Rockets Twitter and the Hardos, like, you know, your Red Rowdies, they know. Um, but the city wants to be behind its basketball team. And the vibe in this city is just that this organization is absolutely in disarray, similarly to the Texans. But the difference, and I want to make this clear if I haven't before, the difference between the Texans and the Rockets and where these two franchises are is the Rockets actually have talent that looks like yeah, you fair. can win with if you get in the right people, whereas the Texans need to go get that talent. There's a few guys, but the Rockets have some talent at key areas. You know, and I, I, the, what, the last thing I want to point out about Shane Boone, and, and, and I'm, gonna, I'm likely to get more into this with Frank as we get closer to the draft, but this is key. Shane Goon. You, t- you talked a lot about Shane Goon. I want to talk about one thing specifically, professionalism. That is what he does. He, you talk about consistency, that's being a professional. He was a professional before he came to the Rockets. And there is a difference between Jay Sean Tate and Shane Goon, who understand how to be a professional because they came from professional leagues. And then you drop down to the college guys. And Jabari and Tari Eason, are bringing it, maybe not to that level, maybe that not to that consistency, but they were in organized teams where you have to win at a college level. And then you go down to somebody like Jalen Green or Dacia Nix that had none of that. They were in the G League, playing for the G League at Ignite, which, you know, you might have been getting paid, but it wasn't you're in an organized team professional deal. And there is a difference, if you notice, between how those guys bring it. And so keep that in mind when a Victor Wembanyama comes in. If you know, I like I said, likely, very likely, he's not a rocket. But if he is, he's been in a professional environment for the last couple of years, like Shangoon. So I think he's going to bring some of that. I think he's going to bring some of that. I want to win. I'm just not here to put up my numbers that we've seen from some of the Rockets out on the court way too often. So that's something to consider as you evaluate these different guys. Great point. It's a great point. It's inarguable. And I think that is in large part helping um, create this divide um, that, that exists within this team is the differing levels of experience and the expectation. It's hard, you know, when you're a young player coming from, 
uh, a high school program or just a year in a, a college basketball team and you go to this professional team and you're tanking. They don't care if you win or not. And it's exactly what, you know, uh, John Wald said on the podcast a week ago. That, that's That to me is my biggest concern. My biggest fear is that you're instilling though, that thought process, those bad habits and those expectations and young players that don't know how to deal with that um, upon coming into a league, nor should they. You don't get that experience in college. You don't get that experience anywhere else. It's the pros. It's business. And you're met with that harsh reality right away. Um, a good mixture of NBA veterans, guys that understand the business, but guys that also know how to un- you know, know what it takes to be a professional because they've been there, done that before. That's what this roster needs. It's Bills and Chiefs on Sunday. And 49ers, your D'Amico Ryans led 49, well, sort of D'Amico Ryans led 49ers uh, playing against the Eagles, against Gannon and Steichen. If you're a Texans fan, you got something to watch for on Sunday. Hopefully, we're going to have a coach's decision sometime in the not-too-distant future. But like Sean said, it could be a while. Sean, we're going to do this on Monday. We'll be talking about those games and other stuff, but looking forward to it. Maybe a hot take here the next head coach for your Houston Texans will be coaching in some capacity in the Super Bowl. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Hey, don't forget to support us by subscribing and commenting on YouTube. You can always listen to us on Spotify, Apple, or your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends about us and share our show links on social media. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.